0: Good morning, a very warm welcome. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, I'm Director of the Institute for Government. I'm delighted to be standing here this morning, launching Performance Tracker, which we've been working on with SIPFA for several years now. Um, This is the third iteration of this report, which is one of the keystones of our year here at the IFG. And it does, as you know, um, the the practical thing of looking at money into the public services and then what comes out. credit to the team for bringing it ahead of the ever-advancing budget. We were dancing around, as was uh, a lot of this part of town, uh, uh, all the guessing game about when the budget would finally land, but we uh, very much wanted to have our say uh, ahead of that. Why do we do this? Well, it's one way of putting numbers to one aspect, a really important aspect, though, of government performance, and that is the delivery of public services. It also is a way for us of capturing the impact of austerity and the room for efficiency that might be there in the future. It raises the question, which we address in some of our other work, about you know, what can you do about transformation? Can these things be uh, delivered differently if there continues to be, as, as is uh, uh, inevitable, such pressure on national finances? But really, stepping back from all that, I mean, we, we picked this up and created it because it seemed to us it was one of the most difficult tasks of modern government to deliver public services with public expectations of those services uh, where they are, and yet with national finances also where they are. That is a problem that extends way beyond the UK and is is really one of the challenges of modern government. And so that's why we've done it. And over to Emily Andrews and Gemma Mm -hmm. (laughs) Deadline.
1: Thank you very much, Bronwyn. And thank you all very much for coming here today to the launch of 2018 Performance Tracker. I'm delighted to be joined by Emily Andrews, who is Associate Director here at the IFG and has led this publication this year and is going to start by kicking us off with a, a short presentation of the main findings. And then also delighted to be joined by Andrew Burns, who uh, is a past president of SIPFA and currently finance director of Staffordshire County Council, who's going to give a bit of his view on the sort of what this looks like from local government and how local government has dealt with these spending squeezes and performance challenges over the last few years and also by Chris Cook, who's policy editor of Newsnight, who's going to give us a little bit of the the wider view on what does government performance look like in these areas and what might we expect out of the spending review next year. So, firstly, Emily, do you want to kick us off? Okay. Mm.
2: Okay, there's my first slide. Right, good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you all here. Uh, Let's get going. So, after eight years of reigning in public spending as a means to reduce the size of the deficit... Last week, the Prime Minister danced up to the podium at Conservative Party Conference and told us all that (coughs) austerity was over. That raised several questions, uh, not least of which, what might the end of austerity actually mean? And if she is going to loosen the purse strings, more accurately, if her colleague Philip Hammond is going to loosen the purse strings at the upcoming budget or the 2019 spending review, which public services should be first in line? Now, I'm not sure that she has an answer to either of those questions, but if she wants one, there's no better place to start than our third edition of Performance Tracker, our data-driven analysis of the performance of public services. This year, we've analysed over 150 data sets to show not just what government has spent on services over the last eight years, but what the public has gotten for that money. Because although much of the rhetoric around austerity has focused on spending cuts, what people really care about is service cuts. Are services getting harder to access? Are they getting worse? Are they getting harder to work in? Or are they actually getting easier to access online, for example? Or are they even getting better? As our analysis shows, there isn't always a one-to-one relationship between those issues and the money being spent. So in this edition, we've looked at nine different services. In our health and social care chapter, we look at GPs, hospitals, and adult social care. In our law and order chapter, uh, we cover police, criminal courts, and prisons. In our chapter on children and young people, we have a new service this year, which is children's social care. And we've also continued our analysis of schools. And finally, we have a chapter on neighbourhood services. That's things like waste collection, road maintenance, libraries, trading standards, basically those things that local government um, delivers that have an impact on the environment that we live in um, and that are social care. So... Last year, on this stage, when I I launched uh, the last performance tracker, our sit for colleague, uh, Gillian Fawcett, gave me a challenge. She challenged me to produce um, a colour-coded rag rating, showing which of these services that we look at was really under the most pressure. And I was a little bit sceptical, if anyone was here, um, but we have an amazing team on Team Performance Tracker, and we have actually managed it. That's exactly what we've done, using these six questions as our guides. Now, um, you've got this in front of you, um, and I'm going to take you through them briefly, um, but concentrating on what we've found, which is that in almost all cases, spending did not rise faster than demand. (coughs) Which means that even where spending rose across this period, as it did in GPs, in hospitals and in children's social care, it felt like a cut because demand was rising even faster. Now, the exception here is schools. You can see that lone green box there. we spending rose broadly in line with demand across most of this period, but that has started to change. Over the last three years, there's been a 4% drop in per-people spending, meaning that schools, too, now face a financial squeeze. Um, and I should just say, when I refer to schools, I'm talking to 5 to 15-year-olds. 16-plus education has um, faced much more um, financial pressure over this period. But... As I said before, there isn't always a one-to-one relationship between spending cuts and service cuts. As this audience, I'm sure, will well know, um, people running services can make them run more efficiently by managing to pay less for the things that they put into services, like staff, or changing the way they work to get more out of every pound spent. And in almost all cases, that's exactly what happened. Look at all that green. That's great news. But... For the most part, these efficiencies weren't achieved through major changes to the way these services operate, making them fundamentally cheaper to run. Instead, governments relied on belt tightening measures, most notably on wage control through the pay cap and on cutting staff and asking the remaining staff to do more. But we're now at a point where both of those strategies have either reached or are reaching the end of the road, which means it's going to be difficult for services to continue operating as efficiently next year as they did last. In most of these services, the pay cap has been eased, if not exactly lifted. That's going to add new costs for services, meaning that savings will have to be found elsewhere. But the other strategy used to make savings, asking staff to do more, is also looking increasingly unsustainable. There are rising vacancies, increasing turnover, or recruitment issues in most of these services. Now, the pay rises that were announced earlier this year might help with those problems a bit, but small increases are unlikely to be sufficient while workloads are rising. For example, the number of people leaving the NHS citing work-life balance as their reason has doubled since 2010-11. So trying to get more out of existing staff is a risky strategy going forward. Moreover, in no case do we think that any savings which were made were big enough to bridge the gap which emerged between spending growth and demand growth. Now, The major signs of this are, per- are persistent overspending, particularly uh, in social care, in hospitals, and even in schools, and long waits for services. And we don't just mean in an A and E. And there are also some small signs of some demand going unmet entirely. Now, unfortunately for Philip Hammond as he approaches the 2019 spending review, this situation isn't set to get any easier. Demand is set to rise in almost all these services at least as fast over the next eight years as over the last eight. Now. At the spending review, the government could, of course, simply increase spending in line with this projected demand. That would theoretically allow services to carry on exactly as they are, but with extra money to serve the extra people. But that is, of course, very unlikely to happen. So services will need to make further efficiencies or divert that demand elsewhere. Or the government needs to start managing people's expectations about the kind of service they can expect to be provided with. And right now, we can see limited evidence of credible plans to make that happen, meaning there's a lot of work to be be done between now and the spending review. So, this is what our concern rating looks like. And to my mind, the services fall into four broad categories. So, firstly, there are the services we're seriously concerned about, prisons and adult social care. And the prison population has stayed broadly flat over the last eight years, although it has perhaps become more demanding to deal with, uh, with the appearance of new psychoactive substances, that's drugs like spice. But since 2010, spending has been steeply cut. So there was a 20% spending reduction up to 15 16. You can see there's been a slight increase since then, but spending still 16% lower than it was in 2009-10. And that spending reduction was largely managed through staff reductions. So this is the change in the number of prison officers in public prisons up to 2013-14. You can see there was a 25% reduction over this period. And while these staff reductions were going on, it looked like prisons were managing. Uh, So your blue dot there is assaults in prisons uh, on prisoners. Uh, The pink dot is assaults on staff. And you can see that up to 2013-14, it was broadly flat. Now, after this period, we didn't see any further uh, cuts in the number of prison officers. So, um, for the next few years, the number of prison officers rose slightly, but um, was broadly flat. But it's at this point that it becomes clear in the data that prisons were struggling. Um, Prison violence after 1314 started rising, and then it spiralled. Now the government didn't take action here, it didn't quite take action here, it kind of took action between here and here at the 2016 Autumn Statement when the Chancellor injected an extra 291 million um, into the prison budget for extra prison officers. Um, and we're starting to see the results of that spending come through now. So in the last year, prison officer numbers have gone from here to here um, they've increased by over 3,000. But we're yet to see that come through in the violence stats. Over the last year, prison violence has gone from here to here. There were twice as many assaults on prisoners in 2017-18 as they were in 2012-13, um, and three times as many assaults on staff. Now, Rory Stewart, the Prisons Minister, has said that he will resign if this situation doesn't improve um, in in the worst-performing prisons, but I I think his job is probably safe. We should start seeing the impact of staff increases come through in this year's violence data, at least a little. But prisons are clearly in a really precarious position, and we can see no evidence that the prison service could manage to make any further spending cuts right now, which is a big challenge, of course, for the 2019 Spending Review, with the Ministry of Justice being one of the few uh, unprotected departments. Now, as you can see, our serious concern about adult social care goes across the board. And there's lots of reasons for this, um, and I think Andy will probably pick up on a few of them, but we're particularly concerned about a couple of things. Firstly, the sustainability of the provider market. After research from the Competition and Markets Authority showed that local authorities were paying, on average, 10% less than the total cost of each care home place that they supposedly paid for. So that's one reason. And the second is that the social care green paper, the thing uh, which is supposed to set us on the path towards financial sustainability, is now a year late. And even if it does come this autumn as promised, it's still going to be, of course, uh, a good four or five years before any solution that comes of it is implemented. So we need a medium term plan to get us there or at least another big injection of cash. So, those two um, are in our top box. Next, there's a set of services that are a bit more in the middle. So, the issues in hospitals are well known. I don't want to talk about them in detail. Spending has risen, but not as fast as demand. Um, and while the quality of care in hospitals has been broadly maintained, efficiencies clearly haven't been enough to keep up with demand, leading to lengthening weights for treatment and persistent overspending. Um, but hospitals aren't in our top box right now, um, partly because we know that things are going to change. For the NHS, but we we don't know how. We can't judge the credibility of the new reform plan until we see it. Uh, But of course, if we don't see the new NHS reform plan uh, this side of Christmas, I think that grey box down the bottom is going to go red. Now, Children's Social Care is our um, new service for this year, Um, and while it's in the middle in terms of what we judge, we know that it's high on the list of things um, that. Uh, local government uh, is really worried about. So a sit- for survey of local government finance officers this year showed that uh, children's social care was their number one concern. It's now overtaken a lot of social care. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One being um, that it costs a huge amount of money and the second reason being that demand is growing. So spending for children's social care has risen over this period. It's gone up 14%. And while the number of children is rising more slowly than this, uh, there is evidence that the number of children in need of care is rising rather faster. Certainly, there are more children receiving some kind of in- intervention from children's social care. Um, so, this chart um, shows some of those interventions and the increase um, in their frequency since 2009 10. So, you can see that the number of Section 47 inquiries, that's when a group of professionals come together to decide if a child is at risk of harm, um, those have more than doubled since 2009 10. We've also seen a big increase in children subject to a child protection plan, that's when children are being visited regularly by a children's social worker, and also the number of looked-after children, so the most intensive thing uh, that children's social care does, that's gone up by 13% over this period. So there's a clear financial squeeze here. Um, and there's a couple of very small warning signs appearing around quality, or small warning signs around quality. Um, the most notable being that um, the number of children who are being re-referred to social care um, after their issue was supposedly dealt with um, has doubled since 2010. But the pressure really seems to be coming out, I think, in workforce issues. Um, so this chart shows the number of vacancies uh, for children social workers. There were 5,800 vacancies. 5,800 children's social worker vacancies in 2017-18 in England, um, compared with 3,610 in 2012-13, a 61% increase. Now, as you can see, this has plateaued over the last uh, couple of years, but turnover remains really high. Uh, Last year, the equivalent of 14% of of children's social workers left the profession. Now, not all of these thousands of vacancies are going unfilled. A large proportion of them are filled by agency staff. But that's a big cost for local authorities. One estimate suggests that agency spending is almost doubled between 12-13 and 1617. 17 So if local authorities can't get their social workforce onto a more sustainable footing, the financial challenge of providing these services will only get harder. Now I should make clear that our analysis uh, focuses on acute children's social care, not on the wider set of children's services that local authorities deliver. So the things we don't look at include those more discretionary, largely preventative activity that local authorities do for children, such as running youth centres. And we know that these have sustained heavy spending cuts. Spending on services for young people, whatever that means, um, has halved since 2009-10. But beyond the closure of Sure start centres, where there's been a lot of attention given, we don't really know at a national level what the consequence of those spending reductions has been, which puts that wider set of children's services in the same box as these services, where we're really lacking some key information to judge how far improvements have been made and, crucially, how much further they could be pushed. So in police, the missing piece of the puzzle is actually around demand. So we know that high-harm crime is rising, things like knife crime. But, according to figures from the NAO, over 60% of the incidents that police respond to are not crimes. They're incidents like responding to people in a mental health crisis. And while that NAO figure is really useful, neither, neither we nor the government has a full understanding of what that non crime demand actually consists of, of how much police time it's taking up, or of how that's changing over time. So we can't really say what the police are dealing with and what the cost implications of that are. Now, criminal courts have sustained very heavy spending reductions, and we know that big efficiencies have been made. We know that the process of dealing with trials has become more efficient, but many concerns have been raised about the quality of justice being dispensed in those trials, on which we have little information available. Um, And I'm sure Andy will have more to say about neighbourhood services where we know that spending has been heavily cut and we know that efficiencies have been made but we're really lacking data to say what the consequences of those spending cuts have really been. And finally we've got the slightly sunnier uplands, uh, schools and GPs. Now schools are in this category because over the last eight years they haven't faced the same financial squeeze as other services. There is evidence, however, that they've taken on more work, things like um, careers advice, uh, more pastoral activity, as services around them have been squeezed. And at the same time, results have been on an upward trajectory. So while schools have done, so schools have done pretty well over most of the last eight years, but that situation is starting to turn. Spending per pupil has now fallen, and schools are being asked to make some greater efficiencies. And the size of the squeeze isn't huge, but it entails, I think, a shift in gear for schools and for the government, from a relentless focus on results to one which also pays more attention on value for money. I think that's a big cultural shift. And that's also, of course, in the midst of real challenges recruiting and retaining teachers, particularly at secondary level. Now, GPs are, in a sense, actually the reverse of schools. They've moved from a very challenging financial position to one which is uh, less so. So spending on GPs was basically flat up to 2013-14. But since then it's risen, supported since 2016 by the investment that came from the GP five-year forward view. Now we know that demand was rising across this period. So that early point up to 2013-14, that would have been a real, real squeeze for GPs. Um, But it's difficult to estimate exactly by how much demand has grown. There's no nationally collected data, for example, on the number of GP consultations (laughs) taking place, so we don't know how much more GPs are doing. But the estimate we, we do have, based on demographic change and historic need for services, suggests that now at this point in the last couple of years, spending may now be at least matching demand growth, putting them in a somewhat easier position. At the same time, of course, there are clear pressure points. The number of GPs has fallen consistently every quarter since September 2015, despite government's intention to increase numbers. And people are waiting longer and longer for appointments. So this shows um, the proportion of people who were seen at GPs on the same day that they contacted them. Um, And that's going back to 2012. Um, And as you can see, that actually went up slightly It might have gone down last year. We can't tell because of a lovely methodology change. How we love those so. Um, But I think that this line, uh, what it's basically telling us is that GPs are managing to prioritise their most urgent cases. But the proportion of people being seen the next working day has fallen and the proportion of people being seen a few years later has fallen as well. Meanwhile, the proportion of people being seen a week or more has steadily risen. Now, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Maybe some people want to wait longer. Maybe it's more efficient for some people to wait longer. But this is at odds with the government's stated aim to increase access for GP services, not restrict it. Um, At the same time, however, GPs are making major changes to the way they operate, giving people different ways to access services, and they could keep pushing those changes much further. So, this chart shows the growing proportion of GP consultations taking place over the phone, now at 9%, only 100 years after the invention of the telephone. That's not my joke. Uh, Hopefully, it won't take as long for online consultations to become more widespread, So there's clearly scope to keep improving the way that GPs interact with patients and to push these technological changes further. Although, of course, a note of caution, history tells us that any changes involving the internet shouldn't be done quickly or on the cheap. So that's just a small flavour of what we have to say. There's lots, lots more in the report itself. Uh, But just to finish, here is our whole concern rating again. And to me, this doesn't paint a picture overall of public services in crisis. But clearly, all parts of the public sector are being stretched to some extent. Improvements are possible. The line at the bottom isn't all red. At a micro and macro level, there are changes to be made which could cut costs and make these services fundamentally cheaper to run. But efficiency savings are getting harder to find. We've now reached the point, I think, where government needs to start addressing openly the big questions about the future of public services. The Prime Minister and the Chancellor need to start making these options explicit about what public services cost and how that money would be raised. Tough decisions will have to be made, whether tax increases or lower expectations of services or more individual contributions or radical service changes. And in this context, I think vague promises about the end of austerity aren't (coughs) just a bit meaningless. They're actually counterproductive to an honest conversation. But... We think that if these guys started creating and publishing their own performance tracker with a realistic assessment of public service performance, it'd be a pretty great place for that conversation to start. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Emily. Andrew, can I start with you? As Emily outlined, a number of the areas where we've pointed to concern this year do relate to the services that local government has responsibility for providing. Can you say a bit more about what this has looked like on the ground there and what you kind of see happening in the next few years?
3: Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, Firstly, really pleased to be here, and it's really good that we've got some data and evidence to inform resource allocation decisions in public services. I think too often we we use plans and policy intentions as a thing to drive our investment decisions, and actually having data and evidence to inform it, I think, is really, really good, particularly where individual organisations are part of whole whole systems, whether that be health and social care or police and criminal justice alongside mental health or early years in school. So I think that's, that's welcome. I think from a, from the point of view of uh, uh, local government, I, I think there's three broad points I wanted to uh, to make. I think the first one, I think for local authorities who've got social care responsibilities, which is basically the county councils, and the units in london boroughs about 150 local co- local councils uh, i think their position is unsustainable financially unless something changes you know, we can't afford the future unless we change what we do with those areas that's either more tax or a different offer because the demand pressures from a growing and aging population with regard to older people or more kids coming into the care system are putting significant pressures on local government and the statutory responsibility to balance the books and the responsibility to fund social care for adults and children means that councils are now having to start to cut the universal services that are visible to most people, libraries and highways and environmental stuff, in a way that maybe hasn't been apparent in sort of the first half of this sort of austerity period. I've been a finance director in Staffordshire for about 10 years, so eight years of austerity with at least two more to come, despite the rhetoric. And in the first five or six years or so, I think the narrative was about we've become more efficient. And as an organisation, we are doing more with less. I think the reality in the last couple of years in particular, and as we look forward, is actually we are now uh, doing less and people are paying more. Local taxpayers for council tax and business rates are paying more tax and they're seeing they're getting less for it. And I'm not sure that's, that's sustainable. And I think uh, the social care precept, which some of you I'm sure will be aware of, is now about 8% of a total council tax bill. In councils who've got those social care responsibilities there's been a shift from national to local taxation to fund social care without a public debate about is that the right thing to do or is that sustainable and I think that will need to be dealt with over the over the medium uh, the medium term now councils have increasingly looking at income generation from maybe charging service users or being more commercial and at the margin that's helping but actually that's only a marginal contribution over the medium and longer term something has got to give uh, which I guess probably will need to be more tax, more so than a reduced offer, unless the public accept that actually they're prepared to see deterioration in the services for adult social care or children's social care. I'm not, I'm not sure that's easy, easy to see. Uh, just as, as an example, uh, in Staffordshire, in 2010 we received 200 million pounds of revenue support grant. It will be zero <coughs> next year. Spending on social care has risen from £200 million to £300 million over that period. So we now spend 70% of our budget on 2% of the population. Uh, So that's quite a stark, I think, illustration of of actually the shape of local spend is is changing significantly to support care at the expense of the universal neighbourhood services, to use the language that Emily's report talks about. I guess my second point then is uh, to, to make it sustainable, how do we move beyond discussions about Technical efficiency, which obviously this report talks about, you know, doing more, more output for, for, for uh, resource input, to uh, allocative efficiency, actually uh, spending money uh, more effectively to improve outcomes. So, without getting too technical, everybody accepts, I think, that early intervention and prevention is a good thing. You can see the benefit of those investments and over time, but for whatever reason, it doesn't appear to, to, to happen as well as it could or should. Investing more to prevent demand increasing in the first, it, 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 rather than uh, having to meet those demands and pressures further down the line. Whether that's about investing in routine preventative plan maintenance for highways to avoid potholes, rather than every spring having a, a pothole busting fund to bail out uh, as a consequence of winter, which happens every year. Investing in social and community care services uh, to uh, prevent falls or urinary tract infections in older people the biggest cause of admissions into into hospital rather than having money bagged as winter pressures to reduce delayed transfers of care from the nhs into people's own, own homes again winter happening again every year or a third one uh, uh, investing in early years and child care to enable young children to be school ready and to support families struggling with new parental responsibilities and desire to get back in the workplace I think all of those three things, people say they are good and sensible things to do. But the reality is it doesn't happen. And I think there are probably three barriers there as to why those things don't happen as maybe they could. Firstly, there's something about the cost of uh, putting in place the new alternative takes time to pay off. You end up having then some double running costs of the existing day-to-day versus the sort of the better sort of future. And funding the double running costs and transformation costs, I think, is difficult. I get the other bit is sometimes... An organization will make an investment in one bit of the system but the benefit will flow to another public organization somewhere else in the system you know, the fruits of your tree sort of fall in somebody else's garden if you like and actually uh, organizations in competition under pressure find it difficult to release resources in another part of the system now the solution to that for me can only be about collaboration and that can only happen locally close to Whitehall to say that that can't be solved from by central government that can only be solved in local places in my view through local collaboration on the ground in those in the uh, in uh, in those areas and actually I would contend that investing up front in transformation and double running costs uh, will be better and cheaper than cut 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 crisis bailouts which I think has been a feature of what has happened in some of the areas you've highlighted uh, Emily in your uh, in this tracker and the previous the previous one. I guess my third point, which I guess is a bit more optimistic perhaps, and that's about the potential of technology, uh, digital, mobile, and data to transform the relationship between the citizen and the state. Now We've all got at least one device on us, and I think that's transformed the way we live our lives, but it hasn't yet at scale transformed the way we do public services, and I think there are huge opportunities there to do that. Uh, Of course, we need to be careful about digital exclusion, those people haven't got access to the latest smartphone or a a Wi-Fi signal, Uh, questions about the ethical use of data and data as a public good, and also questions about the financial savings only made from uh, digital if you switch off the analogue services that they augment or replace, uh, rather rather (coughs) than run them alongside each other. But I think potentially the potential of technology could also enable real-time performance data about public services to be used. In a way that maybe help rebuild the public's trust in some of the public institutions that we are that 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 uh, that, that we serve in. So uh, I think there is an optimistic view about data, but we need to be very careful about that. I think there is an issue about how do we invest in things that prevent and improve and reduce demand in the future, not just find more resources to meet demand in the short term. But I think my main point is uh, I think. The current system for councils who've got care responsibilities is not sustainable. Uh, and there's been a, a subtle shift towards local taxation to fund that in the short term. And I'm not sure that's a, a medium or long term solution. The social care green paper and maybe the budget may say something about that. But I think some it has got to gear Because otherwise we're going to have a deterioration in the sort of public service of those most vulnerable. And people paying more for them. But seeing the things that they are used to expect for their council tax and business rates... No longer, no longer being there.
1: Thank you very much, Andrew. Chris, so you obviously spend a lot of your life looking at these things. What's your sort of take on the government's record in this area, and what are you expecting from next year's spending review? So,
4: I think so. If we go back eight years to the beginning of the current sort of um, austerity period, I remember sitting in rooms like this and we talked about how the state should cut its coat to meet its cloth, and we, I think. Learned people sat around, and we all decided the most important thing is the state decides what it's going to do, decides what it's not going to do, and it funds the things it's going to do properly, and it stops doing other things because the worst thing would be to just salami slice because salami slicing would just leave everyone unhappy. And we had this there was this whole sort of typology about whether we were going to have sort of Canadian austerity or Swedish austerity, and the, but it turns out that we just had a sort of slightly uncontrolled uh, spending restraint. One of the things that's really striking about British political life is that it's if you follow the sort of discourse of ministers, what we expect the state to do has sort of not really changed since sort of Ny Bevan resigned over it, right? So we still have arguments about whether hospitals can charge for car parking, right? This is an insane thing to be sort of the subject of national national conversation. We still have the parameters of what the NHS can and can't charge for were fixed in the nineteen fifties. We still have an expectation about oddly actually given that the sort of history of the British state is it collectively taking on more responsibilities and doing more things here and there. Here and there. It's actually been amazingly static what we expect of our government for the last, uh, since the Second World War really, since the Atlee settlement. One of the, um, the consequences of that is that we felt we had no choice but to salami slice. No government f- could find anything big, and worthwhile, that they didn't <coughs> want to really fund. And that's had that on its own would have been hard to deal with. At the same time, though, there was no real assessment of the rights and responsibilities of different organizations within government. So local government's taken the particular brunt here. That it so I mean the 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 there are lots of areas where sort of cash flows and responsibilities do not run together still, or where rights and responsibilities don't run together still. Local authorities have an obligation to find every child in the country uh, a place for their a school place for their kids. They don't have the right to open schools anymore, they don't have the right to alter the number of places at most of their secondary schools. Like, they don't have a lever, but they still have a responsibility. Lots of these sort of quixotic um, peculiar mismatches occur all over government. It's also the case that um, we didn't think through properly about capital in particular when austerity started. So Andrew talked about the capacity of technology, but the the capacity of technology to deliver anything when you can't actually buy any of it is pretty low. I mean, the, the it is very striking that sort of GP at hand, you know, this new um, uh, app-based GP provider that the NHS is funding, is private capital, and it has to be private capital because there is very little, there has been, there is com- more coming back now, but there's been very little capital in the public services. And the idea of technological transformation without money is a bit bit nuts. I mean, I think you have to see the the austerity that began in 2010 is a fairly uncontrolled process. A sort of We've drained money out of the tank without really thinking about what will be exposed when we took the cash out. It's also the case that it wasn't immediately obvious that this is what was happening in 2010 because it took a long time for some of those effects and that peculiar decision-making to actually show up in any of the statistics. So we kind of got two or three years of, of goodwill from staff, of old capital that we could burn off, um, of basically just inertia and momentum um, carrying us through. And you can, if you look in almost all of the, if you look in the tracker, almost all of the performance trackers, there's an inflection point between about 2013 and 2015, depending on the surface, where things suddenly deteriorate, where we run out of road, like sort of the road runner going off the edge of the cliff. There's a period before we look down and realise we're going to start falling, and the that hid the chaoticness of the process of austerity for quite a long time. And it meant, actually, our political discussion ended up in the wrong place for a long time. It's still the case that, you know, the um, crime is the the sort of last inflection, if you like. I think the police are the last thing, where people go, oh, actually, hang on a minute. It it turns out there is a... They were doing something, all those those police officers. The other thing that's happened is that the state has... So, basically, if you think of the sort of new public management sort of um, target setting plus uh, provision of new providers style model that's been our core public service reform go-to option for the last, well, I don't know, you can define it differently. But the thing that reached its absolute apogee with sorts of public service agreements and the outsourcing of the NHS and sort of mid and high new labour, um, we've kind of got a problem because it turns out that we don't. we've not really had this before where... Service declines have meant that we no longer have targets that anyone cares about. So in the NHS, they are two two years ago I think it was when we had the, re- the financial reset, where the Treasury gave over several billions of pounds of money to the NHS on the condition that it got back on track. And they said, yeah, 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 of course we'll do that, and then just ignored it and just didn't do it. And that's fine, right? We just we just accept that's okay. The it's not clear to me how we sort of respond to that. And I think actually some of the responses have been quite good from government, which is to say they've sort of said, you know what, we, we have had major service improvements in lots of areas, particularly in schools, particularly in hospitals, driven by the hated target culture. I mean, we have beaten the horse and the horse is running faster. The problem is that in lots of these places, uh, targets, as it, as it happened, particularly in schools, I would say, um, have kind of run out of road. There's nothing to do. You had to actually feed the horse better before it would run any, get any quicker. <laughs> and actually we're, mo- we're moving towards, um, in some places are quietly moving towards thinking about the capacity of individual bits of the sector, which is something we haven't done seriously for, for a long time. We're actually thinking a lot more about whether, I mean, the, the presumption that if we just set the target and give you flexibility, you know, that's the way you run the public services is, or we bring in a third provider to, to do this stuff is kind of, has been attrited in the last few years. Um, but equally, there are places where it just looks like the government it has no concept of how to sort of do this stuff. It's very striking that the, the NHS is basically moving towards sort of the education regulation system of about five years ago, and the education system is moving back towards where the NHS was about five years ago um, in terms of having sort of, sort of statistical regulation and qualitative regulation as sort of separate... Uh, and independent processes, they're, they're sort of crossing each other at the moment. Um, the I think the, the we have to we none, no one has mentioned Brexit yet, um, but the um, the I sort of there's a there's a slightly I think a misreading of the the problem for government on Brexit with some of this stuff, which is it is not the case that the guys running the academy team in the Department for Education are worrying about the, like border with the you know with in in ireland the the issue is sort of a lack of ministerial attention and interest it is worth thinking about the last time you heard the words free schools whatever you think of free schools the you know this thing that was going to revolutionize our uh our education system hasn't really been mentioned for a few years the um it is worth considering um whether you know what what whether the government has basically the appetite to do anything. I mean, if it had ideas, if it has the, the appetite to actually deliver anything. I think it's that, it's ministerial energy rather than sort of departmental um, capacity as much as anything. Uh, I mean, I think, finally, also that the... the so it, what are we going to get from the spending review? Well, it is fundamentally a spending review that's going to be run by the Treasury. And the... the I think one of the things that the Treasury, I hope, has learned in the last eight years is that you basically can't waterboard services to make them better. Like the idea that if you can just like, just hold them down for a bit, they will get better because they have to get better, don't they, because otherwise they'll be disastrous. It turns out they can just be disastrous. <laughs> and they, like, they, they have to, that is, the, that is a critical lesson. But it has you know, a few centuries of view that it, you know, and uh, um, I think the 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 idea that there is a um, the idea that there's a lot of money coming down the line at the moment. I think would be a would be a bold call. Um, I think the if we basically get uh, if public services should be really grateful for real terms flat, real terms flat uh, budgets for a while. I, just, I mean. I think that's where we are.
1: just one, one point on that? It, it seems like the, the rhetoric around cuts coming up to this spending review is very different to what we've had mm. in 2010, 2013, 2015, when it was quite clearly stated that mm. that should be the expectation for most departments. Yeah. Do you think the fact that we have, aren't really seeing that at the moment, Theresa May is talking about the end of austerity? But,
4: yeah, so I, think, so I think you have to... Um, you can't talk about the British state. So it most economists have very clear views about what we did and didn't do well in the last eight years. Um, you can't talk about Britain when it has an 11% fiscal deficit in the same tone of voice as you talk about it when it's a 2%, 2% fiscal deficit. Like we are meeting the monetary... Well, we're not actually... Meeting, we're almost meeting the monetary criteria at the moment. Right? We're almost back to a completely normal high debt, but a normal fiscal fiscal situation, so they do have to change the thing, but with, with, um, with the, they don't have a lot of room within that frame unless they raise taxes, and they don't want to raise taxes. So, I mean, if, if you basically take the presumption that no government will discretionally gave a 3%, a 3% fiscal deficit, which I think is a sort of reasonable sort of starting place, you don't, where does it go? Where does it come from? I mean, and we do have, you know, these rising costs. We do know there are people with first dibs on the money. We do know that the, you know... The other thing is that I feel like it's... We we have this secret that we don't talk about in Britain, which is that we're kind of, you know, we're a hospital system with a pension fund, like, right? You know, we're a... the, The NHS has the capacity to spend money and then just bill us for it, and that is how we've constructed our public sector. And the... its ability to marginally overspend and destroy other public services is something that we'll probably see again in the next few years. Hmm.
1: Well, thank you both very much, and thank you to Emily. We now have about 20 minutes for questions from all of you. Um, So can you raise your hand if there are quite a few? I'll maybe gather some together, and then we'll get the panel to respond collectively. Tony? Okay, let's start with Tony then. Can you say who you are and where you're from, even if the rest of us (coughs) don't know you?
5: Tony Travers from the London School of Economics. I mean, this has sort of come up, but let's say it a bit more. I mean, the underlying difficulty that the state in Britain faces is that we have a very centralised system and separately (coughs) national politicians of all parties can't bring themselves to explain the relatively simple trade-off between uh, raising taxes and public expenditure. So we're headed for a public sector, I mean, by the time there's no deficit, and if taxes don't go up much, we'll have one of the smallest states in OECD, certainly in Europe. And yet we're still promising the full range, Chris has mentioned this, of public services. And, of course, as politicians um, are trying, you know, with a lack of self-confidence, really, trying to get elected, they'll go on offering this, but the difficulty that that produces, and the, you know, all the charts that will be in this report will show this, is that over time, because of the privileging and protection of some services, there will eventually be no money left for all the others. It's a mathematical certainty. And, and of course, it won't happen next year. And if you ever you say it to anybody, they say, well, it can never happen. And that's, you're off the hook in one go. It can never happen. But the truth is, we are headed precisely, in the OBR's produced statistics that show this, to that end point. So I just wonder how it's going to be possible to encourage national politicians to begin to address the trade-offs issue in a way that allows them to explain to us in an adult way what's happening. Otherwise, it will just be corrosive. It will be corrosive of trust in politics to the umpteenth degree. Second little point, the um, Migration Advisory Committee in its recent report, suggested that there should be no, uh, as I understand it, no further low-skilled migration to the United Kingdom in the new system. The government seems to embrace that. But it also says very clearly that that would require public sector pay at the low end to have to rise very significantly to be competitive. How's that going to help?
1: Chris,
4: do you want to- well, think on the, So on the first thing, I saw a senior political reporter last week tweeting complaining at his local MP about fly tipping like what do you think his job is right yeah, there's yeah. like there's a completely baffle that we have a complete you cannot underestimate at any point how bad Britain is at understanding at like our basic civics okay I mean and the, the I think it feel like it's a cop out to say that things should be put in the national curriculum, not least since most schools no longer have to follow the national curriculum. But the but the the lack of basic uh, understanding of the state and the lack of, and actually, I mean, it's a failure of the media to to properly explain that you're all nodding very enthusiastically. <laughs> the, um, the to to explain properly what the rights and responsibilities of different different people are. But there's also a there's like a um, there's a what do you call it? Um, Collective action problem here, which is that while one politician will promise they can deal with fly tipping, no other politician will pretend they can't. Will say they can't. It's not for me. It's for them. And at the general election, we had the crackers' site of the SNP going on television to talk about schools in Scotland during an election that explicitly excluded schools in Scotland as a topic. Like, they, they use it, they weaponize the ambiguity. And we, I mean, it is, a, it is a problem of the media, I think is the answer to your first question, that we have not allowed, we have not been aggressive enough in saying, no, 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 no. Nicola Sturgeon, I'm afraid, this is an election about you know, the, the federal parliament. You have to stick to federal issues. Um, mm. Not that I'd pick, no, she's just the first example that came to my hand. That other bad politicians are available. Um, the um, oh God, I'm going to get in such trouble. Um, the the um, on your second thought, I can't remember one. Oh, yeah, the migration
5: advisor. Oh yeah, it's but it's everywhere. Yeah, yeah.
4: And they specifically said there shouldn't need to be a there shouldn't need to be a sort of uh, special licensing for the public sector. Yeah, no, there's no. But it's it's everywhere. It's not just that. It's the I think the when you think through the sort of fungibility of workers, right, the, the, it's gonna be a problem everywhere. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to pay more for, for, for workers. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and we just simply just we're gonna have to start <laughs> supplanting people out of the private sector?
1: Um, do you want to? Because we've covered quite a bit on the yeah. workforce issues. Do you want to say a little bit? Yeah.
2: So I mean, obviously, you know, it's the social care workforce where it's where that's the keenest felt. Not necessarily because we've got so many people coming working in the EU, but because you know, pe- there's nicer jobs you can do for the amount of money you get to be a social care worker. But it should also be noted that the growth of vacancies, the growth of, re- of turnover in the social care workforce predates Brexit. Right. So this is a this is a kind of long-standing problem. Um, on the first point about how can we have the kind of grown-up conversation, I think it's important to note that it is government has reduced service standards before. This has happened. You know, in 2010 I think it was that a and know, people being seen within four hours went from 98 percent to 95 uh, you percent. know the, the target that everyone has to be uh, have, see their GP within 48 hours of contact them. That was also got rid of. So, so it can be done, and and, and like as you know, as the, I mean, maybe that was done more subtly, and it's, it's not quite the same thing as having the grown-up conversation. But I think you know we're at the point where basically you know the 95% four-hour waste a and e waste and time target is a fiction, and I think that. We're in real danger if the big money that was given to the NHS all gets funnelled in towards meeting that target because then nothing changes. And there is a choice to be made, there is a genuine choice to be made. You know, that 20 billion a year, when it, when it reaches 20 billion a year, that's not going to be enough to both transform the health and social care system and also recover wasting time's targets. And, and so you know, it, I think you know, re- letting go of that fiction might be helpful. Um and also I'd also say a good starting place for the conversation would actually be, I'm sure you'll agree with this, Tony, a more grown-up conversation between central government and local government. And actually, you know, there being a kind of a, a, a more a better understanding, more backwards and forwards going there. Um and greater channels being opened as the decisions are being made in the Treasury um about spending decisions, um, between for local government to kind of feed into that. That's something we said in our a recent report about the spending review, but that seems like a, a good starting place and a necessary starting point.
3: If I pick up on Tony's first point, I think I uh, I think I mean the answer, I guess, will hopefully be a combination of uh, a change in uh, the size and nature of the tax base and some reform to what the offer is uh, and, and maybe some further direct contributions towards the cost of individual services and a mixture of those. I think we also maybe need to have a responsibility to ensure that we know, unpopular as it might be, sort of speak truth to power and actually use data and evidence to say actually what it's like. Uh, And there are some decisions that, you know, things like the the triple lock on pensions and winter fuel payments, which are financially unsustainable. Now, saying that is not popular, but we shouldn't not say those sort of things. Uh, I think in terms of tax bases locally, uh, if you gave local Control over all aspects of counts tax and business rates and potentially other taxes. Now, I live in Birmingham, there's talk there about a tourist tax to fund the Commonwealth Games and other things, for example. I think uh, a broader, range, more plural range of taxes linked to reform. And then the third thing is actually, whilst I think individual public sector organisations have become ever more efficient as organisations, the whole system is demonstrably not so. Now, in Staffordshire, we have a county council, eight districts, a city council. Six CCGs, four hospital trusts, two community trusts, a police authority, a fire authority. before you go anywhere near housing and education, that's 22 organizations, each with a chief executive, a finance director, a back office, etc. The cost of existing and the cost of transacting in some aspects of public services is unsustainable. That's not going to solve all of it, but I think a combination of reform with a more honest conversation about what the real choices are as a consequence of the impact of the rationing we spoke about earlier on, uh, I think will hopefully uh, mean that we can uh, move the debate on a bit and maybe we need to talk to citizens more directly and get citizens to put pressure on politicians rather than just talk to politicians uh, ourselves in public institutions.
6: Hi, Ross Campbell from the ICAW. Um, we've talked quite a lot about the uh, the spend expenditure side of the equation. We haven't talked so much about the revenue side. And, I mean, it, it seems to me, I mean, I, I, I look at the whole of government accounts every year, and you know, we've gone from what the big three, health pensions, and uh, welfare, three years ago 51% to TME, two years ago 54%, last year 57%. It's not a sustainable track. As Tony said, the um, the, uh, the OBR is quite clear on that as well, although they can't look at the revenue side and they can't talk about how policy might change. They have to extrapolate current policy. Now, my friends at the IFS would tell me that taxation is now as high as a proportion of GDP as it's been since the early 80s. Uh, they may well be right. It's clearly not on income taxes, but... Um, maybe across all payroll taxes. I'd be really interested in your thoughts on whether or not there is an appetite in the country at large for higher taxation on the big lines of tax, or what we could do within the the tax system to increase revenues to meet what is, is clearly public demand.
1: I don't
3: know about the precise total tax take compared with GDP. Uh, I mean, so to, to, to on that, that is definitely true. Yeah, Sorry okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but but I, but I think uh, I think I think yes, uh, a broader, more plural range of, ta- of taxes. Uh, on the train this morning, so listening to the the, the newsers talk about sort of a uh, a digital tax to save the high streets. Uh, so I think. Uh, maybe it's easier to get your head round it if it's seen to be in the first instance a particular tax for a particular purpose. Issues about whether it's ring-fenced or hypothecated is more more difficult. But I think maybe the public, if they can see what they're getting in return for the tax, I think that's maybe an easier argument to have than a more general uh, sort of tax to fund public services in the round. Because I think the perception until a few years ago was actually there's much more to be done in terms of being more efficient. I think the reality of what we're starting to see is the impact of, uh, of, of tight public spending on the services that people see. Maybe that's starting to change. And maybe it's starting to change for a younger generation, too. I think a younger generation might, m- might reasonably expect to pay more tax for better, more sustainable public services, which they can see they could benefit from.
1: So, I mean, on the um, British Social Attitude Survey this year, shows that there is now a majority of people who say that they would like to pay higher taxes for better public services. And that's sort of been gradually turning round since 2010 when most people said they thought we should have lower spend and lower tax. Um, there's now actually most people say they'd rather have higher tax and higher spend. <laughs> I do. <laughs> so, <you know.
2: laughs> but
4: there's, um, the decision to um, raise the income tax threshold. Maybe looked on in future years as one of the sort of defining problematic policies of the, because it's so hard, it's so visible and so hard to do, but it's so expensive. And the, I mean, lots of our problems could go away if we could actually, if we had basically, if we had basically a Jim Murley sort of IFS designs tax system. But people would notice if you did that. People would notice if you got rid of stupid VAT exemptions. People would notice if you got rid of, the, or brought the personal allowance down to what it's really for, which is to reduce sort of administrative paperwork around silly, footlingly fruit, small amounts of money, not so that people can earn 10,000 pounds a year and be outside the tax system. The, um, like we have a progressive tax system for a reason, you don't need, you don't need thresholds like that. Anyway, um, well, the corporation tax as well is the other thing, where it's, it's we're moving to a, corporate. the corporation tax, debate has largely been, was framed in 2005-6 sort of around the Irish example, um, and this idea that there's this mythic group of companies that are big enough to make up the whole in a country with 60 million people if we, if we cut national tax rates, and the we've kind of, I don't know if that's going to change, I don't know whether the, when we leave the European Union, whether the, the European attitude of tax will change, because we've been a defender of Ireland's capacity to, to do what it does, but... I mean, I think something's got to give.
1: Just following up on your point about who are these people, I guess there's a problem with that question about do you think we should have higher taxes for more spending? It doesn't ask people, do you think you personally should pay more tax or do you think there's somebody else out there who might be kind of liable for that and not you? Um, So I think that is the question. And we've really only seen... Things go in the opposite direction. So, we've so far seen the government say that they will have another year of freeze on fuel duty, which is increasingly becoming one of those policies that <coughs> seems difficult not to follow through with, in the same way that Chris said, the very visible increases in tax thresholds are in the same category. Um, also,
4: Labour's, Labour's manifesto is very striking for basically promising it won't, you're not going to pay more tax, and they'll pay more tax. Um, and, the, and one of the, the IFS's criticisms, but I thought it was very unusual of the which was how it, you do realise there's a very small number of people you're talking about and they have accountants, right? <laughs> not <gonna> get, <laughs> you're not going to get 50 billion quid or 45 billion quid or whatever it was out of that, ten, I think it was 10% of the population they went for.
1: Um, the corporation tax one is, is a slightly odd one. I mean, I'm sure you talk to a lot of businesses. It doesn't even seem like the business lobby groups are really particularly pushing the idea that we need to cut corporation tax any further. And yet that obviously still is mm-hmm. one of the ones that... Yeah, Mm. exactly. Uh, um, Either of you want to add
5: on? No? Okay. Um, Great. Uh, Paul? Uh, Paul Wallace, I'm a journalist. Um, Could I ask you about the position with regard to vacancies, with regard to the quality of personnel in the various public services? I believe that Steve Nichol did some research, it was ages ago, but it was about the importance of paying teachers enough, and he attributed uh, uh, deficient standards in schools to not paying them enough. Of course, that was one of the changes that occurred with the Blair regime. But um, I just wonder whether we're at a point where the quality of, of people in public services is now acting to reduce their quality, their quality too. Emily, do you want to...? Yeah, OK. So... so w-
2: that it has been the subject of much discussion here at the Institute whether, you, whether experience is a reasonable proxy for quality. Uh, and it's very difficult. So what I can <coughs> tell you is that we've seen the experience levels in certain public services go down, right? So, for example, in prisons, so, you know, the government met its target, exceeded its target to hire, to increase prison officer numbers by 2,500 this year, uh, but they had to hire 5,000 people to do it because so many left, right, and the, there's now a huge proportion, I'm sorry I don't have the number of, at the top of my head, of prison officers who've, who've only been there for two years, and, and that has to be something of a risk to quality, um, so we're seeing recruitment and retention issues in other areas, right, so schools, you know, every, you know, there's a, a, a target for how many teachers, trainee, postgraduate trainee teachers going to be recruited every year, the government's getting further and further and further away from that target, there are over 3,800 teachers short. In secondary schools last year. Um, and that's obviously particularly um, st- uh, particularly notable in uh, your STEM subjects, right? In, in science, technology, mask, um, uh, computer science. Um, but even we're not even recruited enough English teachers this year. English teachers. Um, and I think, but I think actually. You know, obviously, particularly with those subjects where you can command a much higher salary elsewhere, and that's you know very much the case in things like computer science. Then, then pay is is, a, is kind of has to come in and be part of that equation. And but that tiny little, uh, the, the the kind of the little easing of the pay cap isn't isn't going to be enough to to help with that. I shouldn't think. While we're in a situation, of course, where where there's concerns about workloads, and actually, workload is what is what comes out as the other kind of big issue here. So, you know, research by the National Foundation for Educational Research showed that people were uh, leaving, teachers are leaving for a pay cut. They're not leaving for a pay rise. Okay, so, you know, they're leaving for more part-time work, they're leaving for more flexible work. It's these kind of, kind of quality of life issues that seem to be the issue there. Um, I mean, uh, so yeah, and I mean, you know, we've got, you know, we see that in the NHS numbers as well that I cited, um, you know, so, Certainly, turnover is increasing and, 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 ex- and you know, in most e-services, experience is going down. Um, and that's, whether or not it's a risk to quality, it's also just very expensive. You know, this is one of, you know, and that, I think, is the big concern about it is that, you know, if you've got to keep hiring people in order to keep up with it, that's, that's a huge cost. Um, and that's one of the reasons I'm really worried about it.
1: So, I think there was, I, I think it was some Gatsby research, or well, it may have been Sutton Trust yeah. looking at... Um, the, the cost of that you'd have to pay to hire, particularly STEM subject yeah. teachers, and that showed that you could get pretty high returns for a relatively small amount of money in terms of the quality of your teachers. But that does raise a point that schools so far have not been willing to pay different subject teachers different amounts of money. Um, so it's kind of a question about whether schools would be willing to target extra spending to fill those big vacancy which areas, is,
2: which is very countercultural. We,
4: <laughs> the department, when it, when it analyses the teachers' labour market, one of the department's really strange like, conceptualizations of the labour market is that they, they really worry if you have high vacancy rates. They really worry if you have a high turnover rate in a school. And they really worry if um, teachers aren't staying in a school for a long time. So they look at parts of the country where those are endemic. And the odd thing is that the places with the lowest turnover rates, the, the highest... Um, tenure rates um, are absolutely the worst schools in the country like bar by a country mile and the teachers are but that's partly about um, local pay so there are teachers in like East Yorkshire which is like which is a sort of one of our most problematic educational regions um, sort of around Hull where they are not leaving they are not moving on they are never going to another school they're not seeing any other schools and you know they are immovable and they're paid really well for the local area they can live in big houses you know and basically no one's ever asked and no one's particularly put pressure on them before the recent years to to i'm not going to say to try harder but to like to to standards haven't been as big an issue as they have been in some inner london boroughs so so this stuff is really hard and partly and it's like national pay rates are a, are a problem for this.
2: And the, you know, and the other big challenge is, of course, you've got teachers, you know, young, you know, much higher turnover in London where you've got younger teachers leaving because, and then you, you lose your senior leadership pipeline as people go to buy houses. Mm-hmm.
1: So we probably have time for one more question. Would anyone like to shoot their hand up to make a claim for... OK, great. gentlemen over there.
6: probably won't take much answering either. Um, thank you for really interesting and useful um, information and analysis, and well done on rising to the colour coding challenge. <laughs> um, I don't think anybody will be surprised at all the red in the adult social care mm-hmm. column, but I was also struck by the grey in the row about um, evidence of efficiencies uh-huh, there. Um, and I wonder if you've got any explanation for that.
2: Uh, we can that no, I can do it. Graham, do you want to do it? Okay, right. Okay. So um, so part of the problem is, and, and Graham can correct me if I have this wrong, is on the, the kind of data that we have about adult social care, right? So if you just look at the raw numbers, the number of uh, 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 care packages that have been provided have gone down much faster than spending, which would suggest that the <coughs> system has become much less efficient. But obviously, that's not that's not happened, right? Because you've got uh, your most intensive uh, services are, are uh, cost more, um, and you and and that's the things that've been more protected. But we don't have a really accurate cost weighting for those things, which make it difficult. And also, we're lacking a lot of data because so much of that's being provided not in the public sector; it's being provided in the private sector. So you so you lack a huge amount of um, output data about what's going on because not only is a lot of it being provided. Uh, so state-funded care being provided by third-party providers. Also, a lot of the time that's happening alongside uh, people who um, are paying for themselves, so you can't really pull them apart, and it's, it's a real challenge. Um, have I missed anything important?
3: If, if I you. can m- m- maybe add, uh, so uh, if I use self, uh, adult social care in Staffordshire, but actually Staffordshire is a typical uh, social care uh, organisation. So adult social care is either residential care for older people or domiciliary care, home care-type support. Uh, And in both cases, we are providing... uh, We're spending more money, but on fewer people. We've tightened eligibility criteria to ensure we can balance the books. Uh, The costs of packages are rising, but actually we are supporting people with more intense needs. The costs are rising because of things like national living wage, so there are cost pressures (coughs) in there. Uh, But also, when, when we are purchasing that from marketplace rather than providing ourselves our, our, our prices in procurement uh, per unit prices are falling and the and the markets are now telling us in some places they're starting to fall over so there's, the, there's uh, undoubtedly some technical efficiency going on there in terms of uh, uh, getting some price efficiency but actually at the expense of pushing some providers to a place where they're saying it's not it's not sustainable but as commissioners we've had to tighten eligibility criteria which means actually you need to be really really needy and very very poor to get any social care support (coughs) Uh, low level support or support which you might have previously got uh, when when you had some ability to contribute yourselves has been rationed off the scale.
1: Thank you very much. I'm afraid we're now coming to the end of our session, thank you all very much for joining us. I hope this has given you a bit of a taste of what's in the performance tracker but please do go and read the full report, there's an awful lot of, of numbers and further analysis in that. Um, I think as we've hopefully kind of conveyed to you, we've now had eight years of quite deep cuts to many areas of public services and other areas seeing spending not even not matching the growth that's been that's happened to demand. That started with a drive that actually many services did become more efficient, but actually that has become harder and harder over recent years and is going to be, continue to be hard in the coming years as demand pressures continue to grow if the government doesn't allocate more money to those things. Um, but kind of our call on the government is to have a more honest conversation with the public about the extent to which we can really continue to expect the same scope and quality of services <coughs> if we aren't willing to allocate more money to do that. Uh, And if we don't allocate more money, then what what is it that is going to give? Is it it the scope of services? Is it a lower quality? Uh, Do we cut some areas and and protect others? And that's hopefully what we will see happening in a more honest way in the run-up to the 2019 spending review and in this budget. But we wait and see. Thank you very much.